In the 1800s, there was a man named John H. Newman, um, and he was born in England, and he grew up a very talented, a very wise, and a very gifted preacher and academic. Um, he was very eloquent and popular, popular for his sermons, and he went through the ranks of all the elite schools and seminaries and institutions that England had to offer. And when he was at the height of his power and of his influence, this man did not go to the most popular or the most powerful institution, but out of conviction in the Holy Spirit, he went to the city of Birmingham, England, and he started a school for underprivileged boys to teach them not only about education, math, and science, but to give them a foundation in the gospel. Now, the fact that I said Birmingham, England, and none of you kind of batted an eye means this. That's like the equivalent of our powerful lead pastor, Pastor Michael, going in all of his giftedness and strength and eloquence to the middle of nowhere in Montana, where there's more squirrels than human beings, and saying, I'm going to spend the rest of my life preaching to the squirrels and the rivers and the creeks. It made no sense. And on top of that, Birmingham, especially in the 1800s, was not even a well-known city. And the, most thing that, the, the thing that they were most famous for was not eloquence or education, but it was for producing coal. It was a poor, uneducated, unsophisticated town. And this is the place where John H. Newman went. And for years and years, all of his powerful friends, all of his colleagues tried to lure him away to these beautiful and powerful and amazing ministry positions in international cities, at great institutions of education, at large and powerful churches. And each year, John Newman said, I'm good. This is where I'm going to be. And finally, one year, this important man in the Roman Catholic Church, his name was Monsignor Talbot, a high-ranking priest, he invited John Newman to come and preach at one of the greatest churches in Rome, Italy, on Easter Sunday. Now, his strategy was not to say, just work here. His strategy was to invite Newman to come to this huge church in Rome on Easter, the Super Bowl of Sundays, to preach there. And then he would finally recognize, ah, this is where I should be. This is where my gifts will be best applied. And so he invited him. And on July 25th, 1864, this is John Newman's response in a short letter. Here's what he says. Dear Monsignor Talbot, I have received your letter inviting me to preach next Lent in your church at Rome to, quote, an audience of Protestants more educated than could ever be the case in England. However... The people of Birmingham have souls also. And I have neither taste nor talent for the sort of work which you have cut out for me, and I humbly beg to decline your offer. I am always truly yours, John H. Newman. You see, what we see on evidence in the case of John Newman is that among his better qualities... His incredible mind, his genuine faith, his ability to speak to hundreds and thousands of people and effectively communicate the gospel, among his better qualities, what we see here revealed is his best quality or his greatest strength, which is actually humility. To stand in the face of professional recognition, institutional power and prestige, to be in a position that he was worthy of, invited to, and yet to stay in the slums of Birmingham to teach poor, uneducated, coal-streaked children who did not want to be in a classroom with him and to commit to that because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the gospel, that's not just faith, that's humility. 
Humility is not to think less about oneself, but to think about oneself less. To take up the posture of service, to lift others and their needs above your own, it's to serve well and to understand your place in life, not in relation to one another, but in in relationship to where God has placed you. The people of Birmingham have souls also. In our text today, in verse 11, Moses is no longer a baby as we discussed last week in the sermon. In verse 11, Moses is now an adult, full grown at 40 years old, and it says that Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens as slaves, those who were oppressed and laid low. That word people means brothers or those related by blood. So the author is here telling us that Moses at least has some kind of understanding that he is not the same as the other princes of Egypt. There is some kind of difference, and we're not sure if he knows completely, but he at least understands he's different. And so he's suggesting that Moses went out to his people, the Hebrew slaves, to look upon their status, their condition of living as slaves. And as he went out to his people, his brothers, those of the same blood, he sees an Egyptian beating a slave, a Hebrew slave. Now, the first point of evidence here that Moses understands that he is a part of these people is that in that day, slavery was common. And if you knew slavery was common, the fact that the slave owner was beating his slave or his property was not a big deal. This should not have been a big deal. But something clicks within the heart of Moses. And as he is seeing seeing this Egyptian beat this Hebrew slave, he looks to his left and he looks to his right, recognizes that nobody is around, and Moses strikes the Egyptian so hard that he kills him. Moses murders this man. And we know that this is a murder, and we know that Moses knows that it's a murder, because after he kills him, he takes the body and immediately tries to hide it and bury it in the sand to cover his shame to cover his sin. The next day, Moses goes out among his people again and sees two brothers, or Hebrew men, slaves, fighting one another in anger. And he must have been watching them or listening for a while because in the text it says, Moses said to the one in the wrong. Moses said to the one who messed up, why are you hitting your brother? Why are you fighting your brother? And the answer that this Hebrew slave, this brother, this ethnic Connection with Moses replies is interesting. He says to Moses, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me just like you killed that other Egyptian man yesterday? In other words, what he's saying is, who do you think you are? You're not a big deal. You have no authority here. Sure, we know you killed that Egyptian man yesterday. We know you're a murderer. We know that your position as a prince of Egypt is in danger, and it's going to be found out. Don't think you can come in here and tell us what to do. Moses is being rejected by the very people that he is a part of, and Moses here is being grumbled against, as we will see in the rest of the book of Exodus. This is not the first time. So Moses is beginning to realize a couple things. I'm being rejected by my people. I'm going to lose my princeship. I'm going to have to leave my land that I've only known since I was born. I'm getting everything stripped and torn away from me. The word of Moses murdering the Egyptian reaches the ears of Pharaoh, and immediately Pharaoh condemns Moses to death, which is our second clue that everyone knew that Moses was not an Egyptian. 
For a member of the royal house of Egypt to commit a crime and to be immediately sentenced to death without a trial was unheard of. Pharaoh had not accepted Moses as a prince of Egypt. Pharaoh had tolerated Moses, knowing that there was something different about his background, and now was his chance to get rid of him. And so Moses, filled with fear, knowing that he is guilty of murder, knowing that his own people hate him, knowing that he has no safe place in Egypt, knowing that he has nothing left, is afraid, and he runs away from Egypt to the east, to the land of Midian. And I like how this section ends. Very simply, he finds a well, and he sits down next to it. Now, the reason why this is interesting is because he's in the land of Midian, which is desert wasteland, and there's a well, and he has no way of drawing water out of it, and he sits down, in other words, because he has no place to go, no people to call his own, nothing to do. He is hopeless. He has no purpose. Although Moses has concern for the weak and oppressed, he is not yet qualified for the role that we will see him take on. He is not yet a man of God. In verses 11 through 15, we see that the once privileged prince of Egypt is now reduced or humbled to nothing. As we get into verses 16 through 22, we see a shift in the narrative here in the story where God begins to restore Moses to become what he was meant to be, which is not a powerful leader, but a servant of God. As he's sitting by the well in the desert land of Midian, humbled and stripped of everything that he used to have, seven daughters of Ruel, a.k.a. Jethro, come with their father's flock to water and shelter them in the desert heat. Now, I don't know if you've ever shepherded, but it's not fun. I've done it for seven hours. And what they had to do, these seven women, and he specifically calls them women because this event in the story is, they have brought a large flock of sheep that do not understand English, do not understand the tone of your voice, and it's their job to gather them at the well in sections and to drag water out of a deep well over and over and over again in 104-degree weather to, to give them water so that they might live and to find them shelter. Now, I have a hard enough time feeding college students on Friday night, and I don't even order the food. Now, imagine taking a flock of disobedient, not understanding sheep that have a desire to do anything except for what you tell them to do. Now, even if there are seven women, this is not only mentally and, and strategically stressful, it's physically draining. And here they are in the desert with their flock, and they come to this well, and they begin to struggle to water their sheep. And in the midst of this, a group of shepherds, and this, this phrase, a group, a, a group of shepherds, is kind of a nice way of saying it. But in the actual translation, what it means is a group of untrustworthy men came out of nowhere with their flocks. And they came to the well that these seven women were trying to water their flock. And they physically, emotionally, and mentally began to abusively kick them away from the well so that they could water their flock. Regardless of justice, regardless of manners, regardless of chivalry, they did not care. And so they physically, mentally, emotionally began to be abusive and drive them away so that they could water their flock. In verse 17, Moses, this man who has nothing, seeing injustice and abuse happen, stands up to these rude male shepherds, and he defends the women and their flock and drives them away. What we're beginning to see here is the character of Moses being used in a different manner. 
In the first section of chapter 2, what we're seeing is Moses is using his innate sense of justice and responsibility according to his own will and planning and wisdom, and he fails. He tries to stand up for his people, and then he murders someone. But here what we're seeing is that when he is stripped of nothing, and he's responding to injustice, when he's just responding to abuse, God enables him to act for true justice and righteousness. Moses stands up to the shepherds, the male shepherds, and he kicks them away. And not only does he drive them off, but he himself alone waters all of their flock and brings them to shelter. This is a powerful piece of not just spiritual redemption, but of physical protection. When the daughters of the high priest Reuel return home, their father is surprised to see them home that early. Now, this is interesting because he says, how are you home so early? Meaning two things. One, he knew he was sending his daughters into a dangerous area. And two, he knew that what he was asking them to do was not only impossible, but it was ridiculous. So he's surprised that they're home so early because he's expecting them. He's expecting them to be abused. He's expecting them to be kicked away from the well repeatedly. He's expecting his daughters to undergo hardship and suffering, and yet he still sends them because simply he does not have a son. The daughters respond, this Egyptian came out of nowhere. They call Moses an Egyptian, meaning Moses ran away from Egypt so quickly he did not even change his clothes from the casual Egyptian royalty clothes he was wearing to traveling clothes. They say an Egyptian came out of nowhere and he beat off the attackers. And not only that, but he, he watered our sheep. And not only that, but he protected and honored us. And that's how we're done. And he did this all by himself. And the father says, where is this man? You left him alone? Can you imagine that? You left him there? He came out to the highway at 2 in the morning and changed your tire and your battery, and he jump-started everything for you, and all you said was thanks and left him on the road? And this man says to his daughters, go back to the well, bring him here so that he may eat bread. Now, at first glance, this did not seem like a big deal, but that's the crux of the text here today. You see, what Raoel is doing He's inviting Moses, not just to his home, not just to share food, not just to eat bread, but in that culture and context, when you say, come and eat bread with me, what you're actually saying is come and belong. Come and be a part of. Come and find your safety and your identity here. Rarewell, through the grace of God, is giving Moses what, he, what had just been stripped away in the truest form of family, identity, purpose, belonging. This is the restoration of Moses by the grace of God. And verse 21 tells us something very powerful. And Moses went and was content to dwell with a man. He was content to belong. He was happy that he finally had a place to say, this is where I am from. Apparently that bread was so delicious that he not only went there to eat, but he married the guy's oldest daughter. Her name was Zipporah, which is a beautiful name. Zipporah, I take you to be mine a lawfully wedded wife. And not only did he marry the man's oldest daughter to really belong, they truly put down roots because they had a son and they named him of all things Gershom. But the word Gershom means I have been a sojourner in a foreign land or I'm an alien here, but now I have found a home. Verse 
verses 23 through 25, the tone shifts a little bit from, the narr- from this narrative of Moses' fall and humbling and redemption. And it says that God heard and knew of the suffering of his people. You see, what we're thinking as we kind of go through this, this narrative and this story here is that, one, does God not know that Moses is screwing up? Two, does God not know that Moses is losing everything and he's supposed to be this key figure? Third, does God not know that his people have been enslaved in Egypt and they're being oppressed and beaten and murdered and raped and being exploited in every situ- situational circumstance? And verses 23 through 25 says, God knows. And not only God, did God know, but he heard the cries, the prayers, the lamentations of his people. And then everything that follows is God not only hearing and knowing, but how God would redeem, how he would move and how he would act. Church, we saw the stripping away of all the confusing identity issues of Moses in the first five verses. We see the beginning of his redemption and reformation in verses 16 through 22. The idea is that he is humbled, a nobody with no land. He is stripped of not only his titles, he is stripped of his identity. And yet what we see is God not only humbles him, but he humbles him for the purpose of restoring him and redeeming him. But it begins with humility. This is the story of the gospel. Here's the question I'll begin before we get to the final points, but with what attitude did you walk into worship today? Did you walk into the presence of God in the throne room of heaven? Did you walk into this room ready and and wanting and desiring to worship the creator of all things? Did we enter into this place with humility in our hearts to lay ourselves low, not because we're good at worshiping, but because he is worthy of even the brokenness of our songs and the brokenness of our lives? Or did we walk in with, this is what we do on Sunday, do we walk in with frustration? Do we walk in with our burdens or our fatigue or our attitude in our lives being of greater importance and value than the worship and the praise of God. The more that I've experienced the gospel in my life, the more I'm convinced that without humility, there is no faithfulness. And without faithfulness, there is no perseverance. And without perseverance, there is no redemption. Without humility, there is no faith. And without faith, there is no perseverance. And without perseverance, ultimately, in in the glory and and the magnanimous nature of God, There is no redemption. It begins with humility, understanding that we are in need. And that's the first point. We are redeemed by humility before the cross. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that we are inherently broken by sin and unworthy of the redeeming love of God. And yet, and yet, in faith, 1 Peter 2, 5 through 9 says that if we believe, he will not only hear and accept us, but he will remake and restore and redeem us into a royal priesthood a chosen generation, a holy nation, his own special people, that we would proclaim the praises of God who called us out of darkness into his light. It begins with humility. On our own, we are without a people, without a land, without any right to any and all things that offer hope and joy. Humility is the posture that leads to faith and redemption. It's hard enough being friends. It's hard enough trying to achieve our careers on our own. But without humility, these things are not just difficult but impossible. The posture that we approach God must begin in humility. 
couple years ago, I was talking with a friend who was on his way to London, England. And the reason why he was going to London, England, was because his boss was going there to meet the Queen of England. Now, I don't know anything about queens and kings. I just know that Harry and that girl from Suits just had a baby. Um, I don't know. I just used to watch that a while ago. Um, but he was going to see the king, and we were talking about what kind of experience, the, and he wasn't going to be able to talk to her, but his boss was because he had done something with England or for England or whatever. But he said, you would not believe the things that he has to remember and do in front of the queen. And so part of the, part of the equation in, in her presence was that when he would walk into the room, he could not make eye contact or look in her direction, so he would have to look down, and then he would have to bow. And then he would have to wait there until it was his turn because there were other people in the room. And finally, when somebody said, okay, now it's your turn or whatever, by clearing their throat, they, he would have to walk forward four steps with his eyes to the ground, and then he would have to bow again. And then beyond all these things, he was told by the royal planner, at no point should you talk to her unless she asks you a question, and at no point should you make eye contact directly with her because she is the queen of England. And there were 74 other rules that he had to do. And so he said, after the trip, he said, he got back and he said, I asked him how it went. And he said, my boss went, he bowed, he went forward four steps, he bowed again. And finally, when the queen, I love this phrase, acknowledged his presence by saying, you may look up. He said, my boss looked up and looked at her chin, because you're not allowed to look at her eyes. And he got so nervous and so scared and so intimidated by the crown of England that he said, Hello, queen. He spoke to the queen. And this is how powerful or whatever the queen is. She didn't say, how dare you, because she's above that. She didn't get her guards to stab him with their spears, because <laughs> that's murder. But, she, but he said, I've never witnessed power in such subtlety. Because all she did was she looked at him after she spoke, after he spoke, and she pursed her lips and she looked away. And everyone in that building knew, dude messed up. And everyone in the building knew he would never be welcome in England again. But everyone in the building knew that it was because he lacked humility before the queen. Brothers and sisters, how do we approach the throne of heaven? We cannot say that the cross of Christ is our salvation we cannot say that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We cannot say that the grace of God is, is the sole foundation that I stand on if we do not humble ourselves before the mighty power and grace of God. We are not worthy to stand in the presence and to look upon the face of the king. 1 Peter 5, 6-7 says, humble yourself. That's a powerful thing that he begins this with. Peter says to the church, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, his time, he may exalt you or lift you up. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That word cares is not just like, oh, yeah, I care about you, or we're frenemies or whatever. But that, you, that word cares is connected with the Old Testament word of chesed, that doesn't really mean anything for you. I just like saying that word. Chesed, steadfast love, deep, undeserved, powerful, redeeming grace. That is what the king of heaven offers to us. We are redeemed by humility before the cross. Two, God works through and especially in our brokenness and suffering for his glory. 
God works through and especially in our suffering and brokenness for his glory. Here's all I could think of during the entire preparation for this week. Why did God waste 40 years? Because between Moses running away to Midian and him coming back, saying, let my people go, it's 40 years that passes. Think of how many people died. Think of how many slaves were abused and persecuted and exploited. 40 years. Why didn't God just say, hey, Moses, murderer, repent right now. Okay, I forgive you. Now go to Pharaoh and say this. I am from God, let my people go. He's going to say no, I'm going to give you 10 plagues, and we're going to do this thing, and then I'm going to split the Red Sea, and then we're going to go all the way to the promised land, giants, big fruit, land of milk and honey, and we're good. Why does he spend 40 years at a minimum before this happens? Because human beings are such creatures that it takes time for us to come to be faithful. Moses was powerful, Moses was wise, Moses was maybe even good and suited for the role, but he was not yet godly. And I don't know whether you want to admit this or not, but I will. I learn best when I wrestle with the grace of God. It's one thing for us to know something, but it's another thing for us to believe. It's it's one thing for us to read or to listen or to write down notes during a sermon or a Bible study or a small group or for some YouTube video about a Christian whatever, but it's another thing for when when the chips are down and we encounter brokenness and, and, and hardship and suffering and difficulty that we would not just know, but that that would be what we believe to sustain us through. God works through and especially in our brokenness and suffering for his glory. Moses has to endure rejection to know what it is to be alone. Moses has to endure the fact that when he is alone, God offers him grace and to accept it. Moses has to endure 40 years in the wilderness of not just sitting there looking at sheep as the son-in-law, but for 40 years what he's doing is he's looking at the mountain of God and he's learning desperation and dependence on God alone. And that takes time. The idea of sanctification is the Holy Spirit regenerating us in the image, love, and righteousness of God. The right question is not, do I have enough power? Do I have enough faith? But the right question is, who is my faith in? In the first section of our text today, Moses, his faith was in himself, his own judgment, his own ability to distinguish between right and wrong. But what we're seeing is that when God takes it away, he realizes, I'm a murderer, I'm peopleless, I'm landless, and nobody is near me. It is not the power of our faith that saves us, but the power of the one in whom we place our faith. And and church, that takes time. It takes redeeming, and it takes sanctification. Philippians 1, 6, Paul shares with the church, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Therefore, endure, persevere. And finally, the third and last point is this. God hears the prayer of his people. He knows of their plight, and he will answer. Part of my testimony in going to seminary many, many years ago uh, was that I had known the reality of Christ in my life in eighth grade, and I knew that I was called to ministry in some form in ninth grade or eighth grade. And I spent the, the rest of my life between ninth grade and the second semester of my college year running away from God and saying, I'm not going to do this. And it wasn't because 
I'm unholy, which I am. And it wasn't because I had other options like becoming an NBA basketball player or whatever, which I was my goal for about four days. Um, it was because my dad was a pastor. My mom is a pastor. My mom is a pastor's wife. And I grew up in the church, and I saw how poor we were. I saw how difficult ministry was. Shoot, I looked at the Bible, and Jonah was a pastor and a missionary, and he got eaten by a fish. And I wanted nothing to do with that. I wanted nothing to do with that. And I realized at a young age that I was good at talking, and I was good at arguing. And so I made a deal with God saying, I'll become a lawyer, I'll become rich, and I'll support missionaries, and that will be how I become involved in the kingdom of heaven. Since eighth grade, though, I knew that that's not what my conviction or calling was, but every single day I chose willfully to be disobedient. Second semester, end of senior year of college, I was still pursuing law. I double majored in things that had nothing to do with seminary or redemption or the gospel. And then one night, finally, finally, I knew I was being disobedient for all those years, and God let me be disobedient. But one night, second semester of senior year, he said, you're done. And for three months, I didn't sleep through the night. For three months, I had zero peace. For three months, I floated through life. And this was when I was supposed to be applying and interviewing for graduate school. This is when I was supposed to be making my plans to take over the world and get rich. This is when I was supposed to be finding my super incredible smoking hot wife. This was all, all these plans went out the window, and I had zero peace, and I was a zombie. And in my head, I knew, you, this is on you. You have disobeyed God. And, but you, it's okay, because he doesn't understand he doesn't understand you. He doesn't understand that you still will serve the kingdom of God, but you just want to do it in your own way, and it's, it's better suited for you to be a lawyer than for you to be a pastor. Three months. One, one morning at 3 a.m. It was dark, it was rainy, and it was thunderstormy, and there was like an epic lightning storm going on. And at 3 in the morning, I was just sitting there lying at the ceiling, and all of a sudden, at the crack of lightning and thunder, I stood up in my room, didn't turn the lights on, and I began to scream at God. I remember my first words was, my first words were, I don't want to do this, and I hate you for making me. And for the next 45 minutes, I screamed at God in the night, in the middle of a violent thunderstorm. My poor roommate thought I was possessed next door, because <laughs> I did not tell him. I'm talking to God for about an hour, so just calm down. He was so scared that he locked his door, he said later, and he didn't come out of his room. And about an hour and a half later, when he came out to check on me, he had a bat in his head. <laughs> and he thought, I thought you were possessed, and I was so scared. <laughs> but for 45 minutes, what I realized was I was screaming up God, and I basically ended up saying to him, I don't want to do this, and you don't understand me, and it's not fair. And even during that, that time of just confession, of screaming, of crying, I mean, it was ugly. There was snot everywhere. I was dehydrated by the time I was done, crying and all this stuff. And at the very end, I fell to my knees, and I remember thinking, I, I was too tired to say it out loud, I'll go. But on two conditions. You have to get me into seminary, and you have to pay for it. And then I passed out. I think I slept for about 17 hours straight. Um, and when I woke up, I had my mouth open on the floor, and like I was still kind of on my knees, and my arms were just out. God doesn't hear prayers. But I went to seminary, and I got the application, and I barely filled it out. I put the wrong social security number because I didn't want them to get back to me. And I was like, screw it. 
I prayed, I did my job, so I'll do this, and I handed in my thing. Two weeks later, Calvin Seminary sends me a letter. Congratulations, you have been admitted to the MDiv program of Calvin Theological Seminary. We are excited that you are a gifted man and you will become a pastor of the Church of Christ. Shoot! But then remember, there's a second promise, right? I'll go if you get me in and you have to pay for it. And so I went to the financial aid office and I got the application for financial aid and I barely filled it in. I think my essay for one of the things of support was like, why do you want to go to seminary? Take three or four pages. And it was three or four sentences. I love Jesus. He loves me. I want to be a pastor. <laughs> I think it literally was something like that. I gave them the wrong numbers. I gave them the wrong address. Two weeks later, get a letter from Calvin Seminary. Congratulations, your first year of seminary has been paid for. God doesn't answer prayers. He not only knows but he hears, and he not only hears, but he answers. And brothers and sisters, I'd love to say, like, I am the first super rich and yet super holy pastor that has ever existed, and God answers prayer. And after service, if you give me $49.99, you too shall reap the benefit. No, it's not, it doesn't work like that. I've been broke most of my life. At this point, if I got rich, like, I'd be scared. Like, I wouldn't know what to do. Like, I'd be like, too much responsibility. I have more than $200 in my bank account. What's happening today? But for the last 14, 15 years of ministry, what I've realized is that I am not defined by my circumstances, but by the faithfulness, by the ears, and by the response of heaven. And that's all that's been happening. If we had time, I'd tell you about how I got hired here. I shouldn't have been hired here. They still haven't figured it out, and I'm thankful for that. <laughs> and until they fire me, I'm not leaving. But God's faithfulness is defined by the fact that he is not only God, but that we are his children. And if you have children, you know that no matter how annoyed you are and how much you hate your child, you know that in that moment when they call out your name in need, you not only hear, you will know, and you will answer them. And that's what we see in, in the story of Moses, the redemption of God's servants. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 reminds us, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What that means is let us hold on in humble, faithful perseverance so that we will be redeemed. Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest, Christ, who is unable to sympathize or know with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin he persevered. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Long story short, what does that mean? Let your father know, and he will not only hear, but he will answer. To be honest with you, a couple weeks ago in our staff meeting when Pastor Michael said that we're going to be doing an entire series to go through Exodus, on the outside I was like, oh, that's a great idea. That's really awesome, and I'm really excited for this. But inside, I was like, ah, boring. There's nothing dramatic about it. There's nothing, you know, what I, I've done 94 VBSs on Exodus. How, what more could we do? But as I, in the last week, um, week and a half, I've been just reading through Exodus, just through it a couple of times, and I'm on my third time, I think, now. But what I'm beginning to realize is that the story of Exodus is the powerful arc of God taking something that is unworthy and unprepared and unfit and making it worthy, prepared, and fit. And not just in Moses, but he's going to take not even a group, but this 
ragtag gathering of slaves, and he's going to make them into a powerful nation in the righteousness of God. This is the journey that you and I are on. And this is why I encourage us, brothers and sisters, let us recognize who is taking us on the journey. Let us approach with humility and faith. And let us trust that he is not only working, but that he hears and that he will answer us. Let's pray. Father, won't you humble us at this time in your presence? Won't you correct the posture of our hearts, our minds, our bodies, our desires before you? Holy Spirit, that you would not be present because you're always present, but Lord, that your spirit will be revealed to convict, to inspire, to encourage, to restore. And Lord, that we have nothing to offer you is absolutely true, but what we can struggle to present before you as a living sacrifice is a humble heart, a desire, Father, to be given over to you completely. And Father, in that, that we would trust in the process of your redemption, of your sanctifying work, and that in your perfection, no matter what the burdens or the distractions of our life might be, help us not to look at ourselves in the context of just what we think and what we know and what we do, but Lord, that we would look at the greater story of who you are and what you are doing in this world. And history tells us, Father, that you are not only good, but that you restore us to the joy of salvation in you. So humble us in your presence now. Humble us with, in front of one another out of reverence to the cross. And Lord, that as you continue to do this amazing and powerful and good thing that you are doing, and Lord, that we would be filled with faith, with joy, and with a desire to respond and worship in every part of who we are. We honor you and we thank you at this time. And it's in your name we pray.